Well, good morning, everyone. I am happy to be here with you this morning. I don't know if you're happy to be here or not, but uh, this weekend we have 13 grandchildren mostly living at our house, so I can't tell you how happy I am to be here. Anyway, I have kind of a strange sermon for you this morning. In fact, most people will tell you that have ever heard me before, most of my sermons are strange, but this one might be a little bit more so, because uh, I'm not going to read any scripture to you this morning. In fact, um, I'm not even going to pray this morning. Can you imagine that? course I don't need it but that's you know but I'm not I'm not even going to talk about God how's that you know I mean we're in church and I guess we probably since we're in church we should talk about God but I'm well maybe I will later on we'll see as we go instead I just want to tell you a story today um and uh it's I don't, I'm not going to give you all the details of the story. I'm just going to kind of give you the abridged version or maybe hit the highlights, if you will. I'm going to give you the, the cliff notes. Does everybody, anybody know what cliff notes are? I, do they even make those anymore? I don't know, but whoever invented them, I'm greatly appreciated because they pretty much got me through college. So anyway... Um, so this is going to be the Cliff Notes version of the story. And the story I want to tell you, it's a story that's in the Bible. And it's the story of Esther. And, uh, and by the way, the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned. And that's why I'm not going to talk about him today, because he's really, quote, not in the story. Now, it's a story of God's people but God is never mentioned. And neither, by the way, is prayer or Jerusalem or the temple or even worship. It never appears in the story. And yet, even though God is never mentioned, it's my contention anyway that he's found everywhere throughout the story. And we'll, uh, he's in every detail. And we'll look at that maybe a little bit later. But our story begins in a city named Susa. And Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire. And if you could put that up there now. It was the capital of the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire ran all the way from what is now modern-day Libya in North Africa, through Egypt, up through what's called the Levant, which is Israel and Jordan area, up into even modern-day Turkey and Syria, and then over to the east through Iraq and Iran, and it ran all the way to India. So it was a, I mean, it was basically most of the known world at the time. And it was all ruled by a, ba by a man named Ahasuerus. And you might know him a little bit better as Xerxes, or Xerxes I. All right, and the time of our story, it takes place around the year 486 B.C. And in, it says in the beginning of the story, in the third year of the reign of Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, he decided, he was the king, and he decided to throw a party 
for all of his princes and all of the... By the way, there are 127 provinces in this empire. And he decided he was going to throw a party for all of his princes and all of the provincial leaders just to show off all of his riches and put on display all of his royal royal splendor and to just show everybody how glorious he was. And this party, by the way, went on for 180 days. That's six months. I mean, this must have been quite a party. And somewhere in that party, he decided to summon his queen, a gal by the name of Vashti, Queen Vashti. And he wanted her to come to the party so he could show off, show her off to everyone to show how beautiful his queen was. You know, I mean, she was, the, she was the ultimate trophy wife, I guess you could say, at the time. But, but Vashti, Vashti would have no part of it. She refused to come. She didn't want to be on display in front of a bunch of drunken princes. So she refused to come. And well, this made the king angry. In fact, he got so mad at her that he banished her. And that's the last we hear of Vashti in the story. Well, after this, there is a passage of time. And and our storyteller doesn't tell us what happened during this four-year period because we go from the third year of his reign to the seventh year of reign. But if we look at history, we can see what went on over that period. And basically, during that four-year period, Xerxes was fighting a war with the Greeks. All right? So, and he had a big army, about 500,000 men, and he sailed over to Greece, and he came up against a group of 300 Spartans. Maybe you know this story or you saw that terrible movie about 300 Spartans, but they met at the, the, a pass called Thermopylae. And there they could not get through. These 300 men held off an army of 500,000 and they just, they got their nose bloodied. Well, someone then betrayed the Spartans and showed them another way around and through another pass and they went up and they came in through the back and he finally won that battle. Then he decided, well, I might as well go on and take Athens. So off he goes to Athens and the Athenians knew that they couldn't beat him. So they abandoned the city and they moved over to the west coast of Greece at the time. And now Xerxes said, well, if I got the city, I I want to destroy their army. So he loaded up his ships and he put all of his army on the ships and he sailed them around to the west side. But the problem was there was the Athenian navy and they were good. And they sunk most of Xerxes' ships and most of his army went down with him. So now, now we, we got a problem. Xerxes had just been defeated and the poor guy comes back to Susa with his tail between his legs in defeat. He's humiliated, he's depressed, and he has no wife to comfort him. And even, you know, even though he's still the king, Everyone in the world now knows that he can be beaten. And he's not the great ruler, after all, that he thought he was. And he's really depressed. Poor guy. And everybody everybody around him, it was obvious. This man, 
this man was in bad shape. So they, had to, they decided to come up with, a, with an idea, something to cheer him up. <laughs> so they went out to all the provinces, and they found the most beautiful virgin, virgins in each, each of the provinces, and they brought them back because they brought them back to Susa, the capital, because they wanted to find this guy a new queen. And I need to point something out here. This is not about getting some hot young honey to come in and just cheer him up, because you know to assuage his grief. I mean, he he already had a harem. So he, this wasn't about that. He, and he was the king, and the king could have any woman in the empire that he wanted. I mean, it's great to be the king, guys, you know? So this is not about sex or any of that. He'd been hammered pretty hard. It's about finding him a companion in life. It's about who has the qualities beyond just looks, someone who would, would give him well, comfort and wise counsel, someone who would give him depth again. In other words, we wanted to find him a soulmate. So that's what they did. So the quest for the contestants, if you will, of the Miss Persia contest began in all 127 provinces, from India to Turkey to Ethiopia to North Africa. And they were all brought then back into the, into the city of Susa, into the palace. And, I mean, you ladies, you talk about going to the spa. I mean, these honeys, they were pampered. They were massaged. They got their oil of Olay morning, noon, and night. I mean, it, it was, uh, it, they had mud baths. And they were constantly at the cosmetic counter counselor and uh, they just getting I mean this was the extreme makeover of all time and this went on by the way this pampering and this beautifying it went on for 12 months now guys I don't know about you but I think it takes my wife a long time to get to look as good as she does but 12 months that's a little over the top anyway their only job, these girls, their only job was to be more beautiful today than they were yesterday and more beautiful tomorrow than they are today. I mean, this, oh, and by the way, the winner of the contest, this, this beauty pageant, they didn't just get a tiara and a couple of scholarships. No, they became the queen of the world. So this was the beauty pageant of all time, all right? Now it's at this point that we're introduced to two more central characters in the story, a man by the name of Mordecai and a young lady by the name of Esther. And they were Jews, and they were living in exile, and Esther is an orphan. Both of her parents are dead. And Mordecai is her elder cousin, and he took her into his house and raised her as his daughter. And Esther is a looker, all right? I mean, she's a real looker. 
And just by chance, by, uh, just by chance the, a guy by the name of Haggai, who was in charge of all these women and the beautifying process and the whole thing, he was out in the street one day, and just by chance he sees Esther. Just by chance, just by coincidence, he sees Esther, and it says she finds favor in his sight. So he takes her and brings her in to the other group of gals, and that's where we start the story of Esther. Now, when you think about this, Esther was living an uneventful life. She knows nothing about palace politics or nothing about this lonely king business. And she she's basically thinks she's got no future beyond her daily routine. She hasn't the slightest notion that she will one day be crowned the most beautiful woman in the Persian Empire, that she will become queen of the Persian Empire, or that she would be the one to save her people from extermination. But through a series of crazy events, or call them coincidences, if you will, she ends up being chosen by the king to become her, his queen, all right? Now, there are certain elements to every story that make it a good story. Uh, they have, there are certain things that have to be present in every good story, and one of the things that's most important is there always has to be a bad guy, all right? So we got a bad guy in this story, and his name is Haman. Now, Haman... He had, he had smoothed his way up and, and to get to the point where he was the number two guy in the kingdom. He was right under the king. He was the number two man, all right? And Haman hated the Jews. And one Jew in particular, he hated Mordecai. Because Mordecai would not bow down to him and would not basically give him honor. So he hated. Now, it says in the story that Haman was an Agagite. Now, you probably have no concept of what that means. So let me give you a little history here. Back in the days of Saul, he's a descendant of King Agag. So he's an Agagite. All right. Back in the days of King Saul, God told, and Agag, by the way, was the king of the Amalekites. And God told Saul to go in and conquer the Amalekites and kill every man, woman, and children and all their cattle and all their sheep and everything else. Well, Saul went in and he conquered them, but he didn't, he, he brought back a bunch of sheep and stuff, and he let Agag live and kind of, kind of befriended Agag against God's order. So Samuel, the prophet, by the way, this is all in Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel comes in, he finds out about this, and he grabs a sword, and he cuts Agag into pieces. That's what it says. In the, he cut him into pieces. I, the Bible's great, isn't it? I mean, it's just, anyway, so he cuts him into pieces. Now, Haman was a descendant of Agag, and now he's the number two guy in the kingdom. And for him, this is payback time. He's going to deal with these Jews. And he's gonna, he says, I'm going to just wipe them out. So what he does, 
through, uh, he successful, successfully manipulates the king and convinces the king to set a time when all the Jews throughout the world are to be killed and then their possessions taken as plunder. Every man, woman, and child. It's kind of the reverse of what God ordered Saul to do. You know, today we think about the Holocaust and what went on under Hitler. Well, this is the same thing, only this time there's no one there to stop it. I mean, we're talking about the complete extermination of the Jews. Every Jew in the empire, from Africa to India to Jerusalem, all up into West Central Asia. And there's no United States to come to the rescue here. This is going to happen. Now, when Haman was planning this dastardly deed, there's a side event that happens. And uh, it's essential to the story. Uh, and this is where the plot really begins to thicken. All right? There are two guys, and they're disgruntled, and they're, uh, for some reason, we don't know why, but they're planning to assassinate the king. And uh, <clears throat> just by coincidence, when they're there scheming this and planning this, Mordecai is in the area, and he overhears what's going on, what they're planning to do. So he tells Esther. And then Esther goes and tells the king. And the plot then to assassinate the king is foiled and the king is saved and everybody's happy. Well, now let's go back to the main story because the decree is issued that all the Jews are going to be killed. Every man, woman, and child. And Mordecai finds out about this plot or this decree and he tells Esther. So then Esther goes and Esther's now, she's got a problem. She's in the, what they call on the horns of a dilemma. Because this, the way I like to describe it, this is Esther's personal Kobayashi Maru. Well, for all you non-Star Trek fans, the Kobayashi Maru is the no-win scenario, all right? Because there's a law on the books that says if anyone approaches the king without being summoned, they are to be put to death. So if she goes to the king unsummoned and tells him about this thing, she's going to die. If she doesn't go to the king, then she's going to die anyway because she's a Jew. So this is her Kobayashi Maru. So she decides, well... If I'm going to die anyway, I might as well go to the king and I'll try to save my people. And then she does. And just, just by coincidence, she finds favor with the king and he doesn't put her to death. Instead, he says, well, I'm going to grant you any request that you want up to half of my kingdom. So she says, that's a good, I'll tell you what, king, you come to a, I'm going to prepare a banquet for you tomorrow. You come to the banquet and then I'll tell you what I want. He says, oh, and by the way, when you come, bring your buddy Haman. 
King says, well, that's a great idea. Um, that's, that's. So he, he, tells, he tells Haman, hey, we're going to go to the queen's banquet, just you and I. Now, when Haman finds out about this, he, that he's invited to the queen's banquet, just him and the king, he's thinking, wow, I must be hot stuff. I mean, I'm invited to the, by the queen herself, just me and the king. I must be really special. But then that morning, he runs into Mordecai at the city gate, and Mordecai, again, will not bow down and will not honor him. And this makes Haman really, really mad. So he goes home, and he builds a gallows, that he's going to hang Mordecai on the next day and be rid of this Jew once and for all. But a funny thing happened that night. Another coincidence. A funny, the king could not sleep. His spirit was vexed. And he's thinking about this guy who saved him from the, assass from the assassin's plot. And, and he gets up and he goes to his servants and he says... Have we done anything for this guy to show him our appreciation? And, and the servants say, no, we haven't done a thing for him. So the next day, when Haman shows up, the king says, well, you know, Haman, if I wanted to bestow a great honor on somebody, just show him how, how much I appreciate him, what do you think I should do? And Haman's thinking, you know, the king's going to honor me. Wow, this is a big deal. First the queen, and now the king is going to put this big honor. I must be a pretty big deal. So he says, I'll tell you, king, this is what I'd do. I'd put the most beautiful robe on this guy, and I'd put him up on the king's own horse finest animal in the kingdom and I would lead him through the streets of the city and have all the people just praise him and honor him all the time thinking it was going to be him and the king says that's a great idea let you do that Haman and I want you to do that with a guy I want you to do that to Mordecai the Jew and you can just here, Haman's jaw hit the floor. I mean, are you kidding me? I have to lead this man throughout the city and have to bow down to him and give him honor and to praise him and all the... Are you... I just... But he did it. Why? Because the king told him to. I mean, Haman's having a bad day all of a sudden. And it's about to get worse. Because after this, they go to the Queen, Queen Esther's banquet. And after a few glasses of wine, Haman's wicked plot against Esther and the Jews is exposed. And, I mean, this is irony that even Shakespeare would be proud of. Because the king's anger then turns to Haman. And he ends up being hanged on the same gallows that he built for Mordecai. And the ultimate iris irony is that then Esther 
And Mordecai are given Haman's house and all of his property and all of his possessions. And Mordecai ends up getting Haman's job. He becomes the number two man in the kingdom. And all of God's people are saved. All the Jews are saved. And they live long and prosper. I could never do that. And they have a big celebration. In fact, they have been celebrating this every year since. It's called the Feast of Purim. All right? It's a big party. It's what it amounts to, a big celebration. Now, isn't, isn't that a great story? I think it's a, I think it's a it's got everything you'd want in a story. I mean, it's got drama. It's got suspense and intrigue. It's got heroes and villains and, and good triumphing over evil. I mean, what else do you want in the story? And it's all in the Bible, which is really amazing. It's all in the Bible. And you'd think since it's in the Bible that God would be in the story. But he's never mentioned. He's not even in the credits. But I think when you look at it, he's there throughout the story. He's behind the scenes. He's, he's the producer of it. He's the author of it. And he's the director. And you know, as I thought about that, I realized that, well, this is a phrase that I've used many times. Everything's changed, but nothing's different. And everything's different but nothing has changed. And I look at our world today, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but I have. Have you noticed in our public discourse today, whether it's on the news with all the politics and all the policy discussions and from, from our government to our education system to, to the corporate boardrooms, have you noticed that God is never mentioned anymore? He's just not in our story, is he? And the reality is, as I thought about this personally, in most days for you and I, God is not part of our story either. I mean, we just go through the motions, we live our lives, we deal with the stuff that comes with each day, and I know that's true, and God is just not in the story. I, it, that's true in my story, and it's probably true in many of yours as well. Most days, God's just not in there. Oh, we might acknowledge him, we might mention his name, or we might even pray to him, but then we go about our daily routines, and he's up in heaven where we left him, and we're down here just going about our business. Isn't that the way we work most of the time? And, it's the, and isn't that true in the rest of the world too, whether it's in Washington, D.C., or on Wall Street, or in State Farm's corporate headquarters, or Bloomington High School, or ISU? Any one of those places, and you could probably name many more, God is just simply not in the story anymore. You know, I have people that I work with, and God is not in their story. 
that he's never mentioned. I have friends and acquaintances, and I know God is not in their story either, and even family members. And dare I say this? Yeah, why not? There are probably people who attend church on any given Sunday, and yet God is not in their story either. You know, it's just like the story of Esther. It's the world that we live in today. God is not in the story anymore. Everything's changed, but nothing's different. Everything's different, but nothing has changed. You know, I have a plaque. We have a plaque in our bedroom that says, Bidden or not bidden, God is present. Bidden or not bidden, God is present. That's one of the first things I see when I get out of bed in the morning. And it's a good reminder that even when I don't recognize it or I don't acknowledge it, God is in my story. Now, we're in a sermon series about gifts and, and that kind of stuff, and we have an application here in this story of Esther, because Esther and Mordecai, they both had gifts, just like you and I. They were, there was nothing particularly special about either one of them. They were just ordinary people, living ordinary lives, going about their daily routines, seemingly insignificant, and irrelevant. But then something changed. And I know some would say, well, this was just by coincidence, or maybe they just got lucky the way things turned out. Or maybe, maybe it was God who intervened and made use of their gifts and entered into the story. Friends, that's the way it is with you and I. Your gifts and mine. You see, if God is not in my story, then my gifts are nothing more than my gifts. My talents are nothing more than just my talents. And any service I give is nothing more than my service. And that's all they are. But when God comes into my story, it changes everything. You see, when God comes into your story or mine, he takes that which is ordinary and makes it extraordinary. He takes the meaningless and gives it meaning. He takes that which is insignificant and turns it into eternal significance. He takes the certainty of impending death and he turns it into life eternal. It was true in the story of Esther and it's true in your story and it's true in mine. You see, God is the author of every story that's ever been told. He was there at our beginning, and he'll be there at our end. And I want you to think about this. God is the most intimate participant of every event of your life. Let me say that again. 
God is the most intimate participant in every event of your life. He's not only with you, but as we sang before, he is for you. Now, that'd be a good place to end, wouldn't it? It's all rainbows and butterflies in the tummy. That would be a good place for me to stop. But there's one other point that I have to make. In Proverbs, it says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And I would like to end this sermon on a positive note, but I would be remiss if I didn't point something else out here, and it's a very important point. All right? <laughs> because God was in Esther's story, but he was also in Haman's story. Think about that. I'm not going to elaborate on that one, but it's, uh, it's wisdom, friends, to keep that in mind as well. God was in Haman's story as well. And that's probably where we should stop. But let, now let's pray. I think it's appropriate. Lord God, we thank you that you have, well, you've been the central character in each of our stories. You've been with us each step of the way, bidden or not bidden. You are there. You're there whether we believe it or not. You're there whether we know it or not. And Lord, you're there even if we want it or not. So I would ask for myself and for each one here that you would... You would continue to be with us and you would help us finish well. And that our story would be pleasing to you in all things. And I ask it in the name of Jesus.